In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague and official agitator, friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. (laughs) For today's episode, we're going to explore, among other things, the subject of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, which was founded in 1868. RICS is a global professional body promoting and enforcing the highest international standards in the valuation, management, and development of land, real estate, construction, and infrastructure. And today has accredited over 125,000 qualified trainees and professionals around the world. At its helm for the 2017-2018 period is John Hughes, a chartered surveyor and fellow of the institution, who took office uh, as its president in uh, November of last year. Welcome to the show, John. Lovely to be here. So, John, in addition to your role as a president of one of the oldest industry institutions, you're also a founding partner in the uh, Toronto-based Hemson Consulting, which I understand provides expert advice in the areas of planning policy, municipal finance, demographic and economic forecasting, growth management strategies, and land need assessments, as well as real estate advisory and transportation impact analysis. <laughs> wow, that's a lot of stuff. So, John, tell us uh, how you um, managed to find yourself first enrolled in the College of Estate Management at the University of London, England, and then moving forward to founding Hemson Consulting and now president of RICS. Tell us your story. You've got to, first of all, remember that I'm extremely old, but uh, so I cram a lot of stuff in there. But, uh, the first thing, uh, I, as a kid, I always loved property, and um, I somehow found my way uh, into, you know, sort of a summer job working in a real estate office, and then I decided I liked it well enough to, to go to college. And after that, I basically moved to Canada. I worked a little bit in, in the UK, but then moved to Canada and uh, been here in Toronto ever since. I was trained as really a valuer. Well, I was a general practice surveyor, as we call them, but I really was a valuer in the main. And uh, that's where I started when I came to Canada. Firstly, uh, with the province of Ontario doing assessment work in property taxation. Later that, I went on to... Uh, couple of other things. I ended up in management consulting, which sort of took me away a little from the real core of uh, valuation work into a much broader activities. And then in 83, with one of my uh, management consulting buddies, we started Hempson. And, uh, you know, here we are 35 years later. We are, you know, without blowing our horn too much, I think we're the premier firm in, in Canada, pretty much in terms of municipal finance type work, you know, all these sort of fees and charges studies that developers, uh, the fees that they hate to pay, but, you know, municipalities desperately need if they're going to build an infrastructure. So we do a lot of that. And uh, we also do lots and lots of demographic forecasting. We do the, essentially the the provincial forecasts of record. And then a lot of policy work, 
our firm's almost exclusively public sector, but I always say what we do is interpret both sides. You know, we interpret the public sector for the development industry and tell them that maybe their ideas aren't completely crazy and that they're reasonable. <laughs> and then I tell the, the public sector that, you know, when they say they need some money to actually build a project, that it's true. So uh, that's what we do. It's, I do, I'm going to interrupt you for a second there. I don't know if you know who Zig Ziglar is. Adam, do you know who Zig Ziglar is? I've heard it, but I don't know. Anyways, John, do you know who he is? Anyways, he's a motivational speaker. He passed away yeah. a few years ago. He used to say, every morning I get up, I read the Bible and the newspaper so I know what both sides are doing. <laughs> 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 so anyway, sorry, go on. Anyway, um, so, so that's sort of Henson. RICS, I've always been... I remember back when, uh, after the College of Estate Management, that was in the UK. Pretty well everybody who wanted to practice in real estate, who wanted to get anywhere up the ladder, needed to become uh, what we call a chartered surveyor or an RICS member. And I did that. And I've always been involved with RICS. It's been an absolutely fabulous network. It's a professional organization. You know, it's been an incredible source of friendship and, uh, as I say, network for information. If I go to Calgary and I needed something, I can find the RICS member there, call them up, call him, call her, and I'm confident that I will get good, reliable information. And that's really at the heart of what, what we're doing is, and actually it's interesting, the notion of trustworthiness is really, in a sense, mm. what professionalism is mm. all about. So, Right. I know that the information that I get from a chartered surveyor will be trustworthy. You know, it'll be one that's based on competence. It's one that's reliable and you know that they're going to be honest. So you get those three characteristics and that's what makes you feel confident. Not necessarily always true in all other, necessarily with others. So that's sort of why it's helpful. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, the integrity thing has always fascinated me with the RICS because it has a very high reputation in that department. I remember, so for full disclosure to our listeners, I'm a child surveyor. I've been with the RICS for 10 years. Before I moved to Canada in 2007, I was a development manager and used to manage property developments for British land. And as John said, you have to be an RSS chart surveyor to play that game in the UK. And I thought, oh, I'll move to Canada and I'll be a chart surveyor there. Everything will be awesome and I'll get a high paying job. That did not work out for me. So I come to Canada and no one knows what a chart surveyor is really. I didn't know John Hughes then. <laughs> and uh, I wound up, back, <laughs> yeah, that was my mistake. <laughs> and I wound up back in engineering. Now I'm not complaining. I've had a great life and a great run, but I grew up like John in the UK and the RICS is held in very, very high regard there. And it fascinated me that other parts of the world where there's been British influence, the RICS has very high standing. In North America, it's only in the last five to 10 years that the RICS has started to rise here. And I think that's down to the, the rise of the P3 or the public-private partnership developments here. Would you agree with that, John? I think that's part of it. I mean, I, I, the first point I'd say really is this. As Robert was saying uh, in his intro, I mean, uh, we were started in 1868 <laughs> from a few guys in London. And interestingly, at that time, London was absolutely booming. 
all sorts of things going on, lots of deals, land deals and whatnot. And these group of very eminent surveyors said, you know, this is a madhouse. This is not, this is not, good. we need a profession. And, uh, you know, they, they started the profession back in 1868 and it's come forward. But the most important thing, I think, from this part of the world's perspective is that in about 1990, uh, I think it was, the, the RICS undertook this study and, and came up with what they call a gender for change. And essentially what they said was that the world, you know, the real estate industry is becoming global. RICS has been, it's always had members all over the world, but it's never really, in a sense, viewed itself as being a global organization. They made a very conscious decision then. And since then, we have expanded to having offices in 29 cities around the world. Wow. We got now grown to a staff of close to a thousand. And we truly are a global profession. And that's, I think, in a sense, as it's come into the Americas, really changed the perception of RICS. Before it was a very much a you know, a small club, if you like, for us members. But since then, we've, you know, we're absolutely encouraging and bringing in members from North America. And I'm very pleased to say that we've grown, not just in Canada, where we were always fairly strong, but very much so in the US. So, you know, we, we're really uh, growing, not just in India and China, which is an enormous amount of growth, but also in the States and Canada. And I think, as you say, Adam, the P3 has been very instrumental in that. The thing I'd like to describe to people as well is how diverse the RSCS is within it. So I am a member of the project management faculty there, but there's surveyors, there's quantity surveyors, there's general surveyors, there's valuation. You know, can you talk yeah. about some of the faculties in RSCS? Yeah, we've, got, we've got sort of 19 of them, actually. Wow. And I, if you think of it in terms of real estate from right you know, starting with the land, I mean, as the term RIC or surveyors, you know, we have land surveyors. So that, in a sense, is the beginning part of it. So we move from people who do land surveying through people who do planning and development work. So they'll be doing, you know, developing the plans. Then we have people who are involved in the construction side of it. And that's where we have our quantity surveyor guys who are and girls um, who are absolutely involved in developing the, the costs of uh, projects. And especially in really complex projects, the role that a, that a quantity surveyor or a cost surveyor, as people might think of it, plays in terms of making sure that budgets are, are managed carefully and, and the, the estimates are accurate so that when people decide how much they're going to, you know, to go ahead with the project, they know what they're really going to spend. So that's an important part. Then we obviously have people like yourself, Adam, who do the project management as they go through the construction. Then we go into the leasing and brokerage side of it, including, of course, investment salespeople. And then through into the property management, the facilities management side of things. So we really sort of cover the complete life cycle of real estate from, you know, dirt all the way through to the finished and hopefully well-managed project. That, that's interesting because the facilities management side is sort of a, an increasing area of fascination for me. And I want to put a pin in that and come back to that later on. But before we mm -hmm. do that, one thing I want to 
talk about is international standards. So when I first moved, I, I did a year in working in the US and in 2000, 2001. And one of the things that became apparent to me was the difference in measurement standards and how leases are structured. So, you know, in the UK, there's always this big discussion development about the net to gross and, you know, the, the yeah. net letterball is measured down to the millimetre, right, because it's money. And in the US, it's just, yeah, you're having the floor and there it is. And <laughs> and there's different ways to measure a building, right, which is... Uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it's really pretty uh, bizarre. Uh, I was actually, I sort of pointed out that way back when, before uh, we had standard time, all over the world, people had different ideas of what time of the day it was. But then actually, with the help of, of a Canadian guy, Fleming, uh, so Sanford Fleming, they sort of standardized it. And it sort of makes, you know, I mean, people would say, well, it's bizarre. You mean you'd have different... Anyway, same issue in a way for measurement. There was no consistent measurement standards. And so RICS convened or uh, has, has put together a, essentially a coalition of organizations globally and has put together what's now called the International Property Measurement Standards with the objective that, you know, we'll have a consistent way of measuring things. If you're dealing with investments, let's say, and you're a pension fund and you own buildings in parts of the world, it's very helpful to know that when you say, I've got a 50,000-square-foot warehouse or a 100,000-square-foot office building, that that means the same thing wherever you are. And it didn't necessarily... I mean, in New York, it's the most bizarre. You can vary by up to 24% yes. the way you measure your building. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I wow. Found, I found that out the hard way when I worked there. <laughs> you know what, Robert? That's you can good. measure under one standard out to the tip of the gargoyle that sticks out on the yeah. building and include that as part of the space of the building. Yeah, and charge so, rent. Wow. <laughs> Well, you know, well, so then how do you, so you think about construction costs on a square footage or square meter basis, holy cow, 24%, that's that just, there's so much error there. Like the playing field, does it moves. It's like a harmonica or what do you call them? One of those squeeze accordion. blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's accordion, very much yeah. accordion. Well, yeah. in fact, I mean, it's more to do with leasing rather than when they're building it. I think they probably get it reasonably, uh, they know what they're building, you know, but yeah. it is quite extraordinary. And you know, you raised the point of standards, uh, Adam, and, uh, you know, our, our, uh, you know, we sort of talk about the, the various specialisms that we have, but it is very important to recognize that at the heart of it, RICS is not really a members organization. What it is, it's an organization that sets standards and regulates standards, regulates its members against those standards. And really, it's a compact, as I put it, between the institution and the people who have the designation. What it says yeah. is, if you can meet the competencies that we're looking for, and you agree to adhere to the to practice in the way that we set out in terms of various standards, for instance, there's a red book for doing valuations, very, very important, you can carry that designation whether it be an MRICS, member RICS, or, uh, or FRICS like uh, myself. So that's really at the absolute core of RICS, and that's why we're so very keen on standards. And we now have, or at least are in the process of completing, we've got the construction measurements, sorry, the property measurement standards, so how we deal with actual built stuff, we're in the process of doing land measurement standards, 
because one would think there's various ways you, you, you must be straightforward, <laughs> but it isn't. We've also got construction measurement standards, and that's vital when you want to compare how much it costs to build a hospital or yes. how much it costs to build a piece of road, how much, you know, so we've got construction. And we've also got ethical standards. So we've got a suite of standards, which it, it's going to take time before it's fully adopted, but we've got it in place. We've got all these different coalitions that we've put together. And so I'm very hopeful over the long term that that's, that's going to happen. So those are the sort of the international ones. But as I said before, we also adhere to international valuation standards and our red book and, and, and internal, you know, guidance that members have to adhere to. I mean, this is, uh, people glibly use the word globalisation, but this is what it means, right? It means a coming together of standards, what's acceptable norms, what are acceptable rules, you know, so that an investment in New York can be measured the same way as an investment in Hong Kong, right? right? right. And I think in terms of, you know, we're obviously talking about standards in terms of practice, yeah. but one thing in a way that I think is, is very important is what we're finding is that governments look to RICS to train people that are going to operate to a, in, a, in a trustworthy manner, as I talked about earlier. Yeah. I just came back from Shanghai, actually, on Sunday, and we had the China Awards event. I can tell you that RICS is just going ahead in leaps and bounds in China. It's extremely well regarded the you know various governments are coming to us and asking us to help them deal with you know standards of of all sorts and in india and again the government came to us and said we have no training for valuers right. we don't have enough training for if you like the sort of financial side of real estate We've got lots of people who know how to build them and engineers etc but we really need people who've got that that uh, professional standard. So we've got two schools of the built environment now in India. And I was there in November in Mumbai and Delhi, and they are just going absolutely great guns. I was very, actually, I was very honored. They, they, they graciously awarded me an honorary professorship. So I'm a... Uh, oh, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations <laughs> yeah. indeed. Well, in Indian yeah. terms, the, t the way that you would be addressed would be President, Professor, Sir. <laughs> That's like a triple threat. <laughs> I've tried to encourage the staff in my office here to uh, use that, but frankly, I'm having yeah. difficulty. It's still John, is it? Yeah. <laughs> well, on a good day, I think there's... still... Hey, you. <laughs> Here's your coffee, John. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because really when you think about it, you the organization is a lifeboat for developing worlds. You know, because it, if they didn't have an organization with the structure that you offer, they would be scattered much like the beginnings of the organization in the first place back yeah. in 1800s, right? I mean, yeah. so really what you what you do for these developing countries is if you've saved them several hundreds of years of pain, right? Yeah. Yes, I, I, I should say, I mean, if you go to some of the developing nations in Africa, for instance, they a lot of them do have their own institutions and uh, you know we're supportive of them work with them a lot but you're absolutely right i mean it, being able to have these sort of standards and to uh, to to get a profession going is enormously important because it does provide some sort of uh, 
uh, stability and, uh, and, as I say, uh, sort of comfort to the people who are going to benefit from it. You know, the general public, the communities need people to operate in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ethical and, uh, you know, well-trained manner. I mean, you need competent people who are going to behave ethically and, you know, reliably. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's there's, there's a good way to look at it, right? So if you're a developing nation, I don't mean that in any way derogatory, if there's a sunk cost of 150 years of development in RICS and you can just choose to adopt that and not have that development cost and time, right? That's one of the advantages. It's, it's the equivalent of having Wi-Fi and mobile phone service and not having to go through laying all the copper wires that everyone else went through, right? There are some mm-hmm. advantages to being new to the book, right? And that's one of them. But there's a pride element as well, I guess, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, people do have to, you know, they have to study. They have to gain Mm. the competence. But one thing I will say is that it's the accumulated thought leadership over those many, many years that everybody can benefit from. Yes. And that sort of prompts me to mention this forum that RICS started called the World Built Environment Forum or the Forum Forum for the World Built Environment. We just had the third meeting in London a couple of weeks ago, and we brought uh, there were a thousand people there in the room, and we had the most outstanding array of speakers, starting with a keynote from the uh, J.B. Straubel, who's the co-founder of uh, Tesla. Wow! And you know, we went for two days to really sort of push out the questions about the built environment and you know what's going to be happening as a result of well for example the impact of of uh, autonomous uh, vehicles on cities the effect of power storage which is not tied into the grid because that could change things enormously there's all sorts of questions around, you know, what's going to happen with the use of big data? How's that going to impact on our cities? So there are lots of very, very stimulating discussion, Mm. very relevant also to what our members do, because it isn't just something that is going to be happening in the abstract. There, you can see it very clearly today that if you look at the real estate brokerage world, that is being absolutely transformed by data, uh, you know, accumulators like uh, uh, CoStar and uh, Zilao. So that the days when the real estate brokers, in a sense, had the, the monopoly on data are gone. Yes. And it is absolutely revolutionizing the brokerage industry. The same is happening to some degree in the residential appraisal business. As you can very well imagine, with data readily available, you don't have, the banks, for example, don't really need to have people going out and doing the the appraisers for them. I mean, they still have have some, but the ease with which it's done and the fee compression because of that has been severe. So, you know, there, there are quite significant elements of the practice, the whole of the profession, if you like, that are being affected already by these types of disruptive uh, technologies. And that's just going to, uh, I think, increase in the future. But I mean, uh, overall, 
I'm absolutely convinced that these, you know, that, that we're on the on the cusp of a of a really important change in much like in the back back in when we first started when it was steam was coming along steam engines were coming <laughs> along i think we're in another era of quite significant change and it's going to uh, affect uh, many of our members and it's going to affect our cities and communities so we're in we're in for interesting times as the chinese would refer to it yeah, that, that's interesting because what's fascinating to me as well about the RICS, it's 150 years old. So there is a what you're alluding to is a level of creative destruction, right? To take an Austrian yeah. economics point of view here, there is yeah. some industries and practices are going to sunset, and there's other ones who are coming up, right? And somehow over 150 years, the RICS has always managed to keep their members at the front end of that. So. I'm fascinated by what's coming down the pipe with AI, big data. I think big data is going to be a massive influence on property development going forward, certainly in terms of design. I think blockchain and artificial intelligence are going to impact property quite heavily in the next 10 to 20 years. Blockchain is a fascination for me in terms of smart contracts, things like that, right, where part of surveying when I was a project manager was, you know, valuing claims, uh, administering contracts, contract administration. Blockchain can do a lot of that and automate yeah. a lot of that, right, and do it with a level of integrity and uh, fairness that is probably not quite there in a lot of jobs at the moment. Do you, do you see yeah. blockchain as a, as a...? Yes. I mean, RICS, you know, we do a lot of forward thinking, and certainly that is one of the um, new technologies that we think could indeed have an impact through, you know, distributed ledgers, as they think they yes. think of it. You know, there's vast quantities of data that are or documents, if you like, that are mm. kept. Registry office information is is the classic one. Yes, and right. in certainly in in some places, you cannot trust necessarily the the registry documents. So there is one very sort of practical example where I think blockchain could well have an influence. I freely admit to not fully understanding the the technology. But I know enough about it to say I'm convinced that we are going to see this come along. As you see, the banks and many other, you know, serious organizations are beginning to to really get involved in it. So, yeah, that's certainly one. I'm also curious as, uh, about, you know, whether we'll see some real advances in construction techniques. Mm. Um, you know, people have talked about 3D printing as being another possibility. The building industry historically has been the least has made the least progress in terms of productivity of pretty well any industry on <laughs> under the sun, and um, you know, it, it, and I actually am of the view that that's partly the reason why we have an affordability problem when you think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely, I agree. If, if you can't, you know, I mean, imagine that computers cost today what they cost back in when they were first invented. I mean, we wouldn't be anywhere. Yeah. The fact of the matter is that the costs of building have really not changed uh, because the, the techniques have remained the same. So, uh, you know, maybe there are there is some hope there. Uh, well, both of you guys live in Toronto and you have a large builder there, Mattamy Homes. And Mattamy Homes a few years ago put a factory on a development and built the houses inside the factory and literally took, got them onto a flatbed and then just, you know, moved them down the street from the factory, put them on top of the foundation. Yeah. Now, now, now they've since 
collapsed that strategy. And a lot of it had to do with the availability of, of skilled trades. There was kind of a misunderstanding that when that if the, if you built a factory that you would have people come in, they could have below low skilled individuals, but ultimately you still needed skilled people inside these factories. And so there was dimensional issues that they had to deal with. The dimensions of the foundation relative to the dimensions of the home. The home came out perfectly, the foundation wasn't, right? <laughs> so there so I'm I totally agree with how unproductive the construction industry is. Factory built stuff I think is has to be the way it's gonna go. But at some point we have to marry stuff that's built in a factory to something that's still built on site. You're not going to get away, I think, from foundations. It, you know, I'm my office here, I'm, I'm now, right now I'm downtown looking at downtown Calgary. There's a number of cranes going up. These large foundations will always be, I can't, they'll always be built on site one way or another. Pile foundations, for example, right? Yeah, but residential is different, right? So if yeah. you do slab on grade, then the factory works perfectly. But for some reason, every person in Toronto has to have a basement. For some, there's like some secret rule that I wasn't part of creating. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, my dream I is... so you can have a man cave. I think that's, <laughs> yeah. I, that's I, I like my man yeah. caves with windows. <laughs> so, you know, I, my dream, my next house, I would love to buy a plot of land and build a slab-on-grade house, which is just done exactly how I want it, then I haven't got to worry about my basement leaking and everything mm. else that goes with basements. Because yeah. housing, I think, ultimately is a cultural phenomenon. And the culture where I'm living at the moment in Toronto is wood-built houses with felt roofs, i.e. like a dog kennel, and a mouldy basement, <laughs> right? That's what every Toronto dream is. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think uh, when you're paying a uh, million dollars for a dog kennel, I don't, I don't think people would like that term particularly, but uh, <laughs> no, I... Yeah. I as I can say, I mean, I think our members are, you know, very much aware of these complexities. And, um, you know, we don't have all the answers, but I, I do fundamentally think that it isn't immune to uh, change. Um, mm. I, I agree, I think, with Robert to some degree that factory built housings at some point going to, to sort of come into its own. Yeah. And yeah, surely I, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that you can build a basement with precision so that you don't have the thing not fitting. I mean, that seems to me that, you know, they have perfected the technique, but there's, it, it isn't incapable mm. of being done properly. Yeah, um, so you've got implication there would be 3D printing, right? Yeah. 3D concrete printing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah, if you could get the footings uh, set up correctly. Well, even the footings could be done with a printer, right? So. Mm. And then, uh, you, then you could print the walls, and then, uh, yeah, in that case, you would have the accuracy of the computer systems, right? Yeah, yeah. You think about that, right? You dig a hole in the ground, and you drop in an accurately 3D-printed foundation and basement, right? Then you, you fit infill around that, then you put the house on top. Yeah. Mm. It's an engineering problem, ultimately, right? Yeah. Or a measurement problem, ultimately. <laughs> Ah, oh, we're back to yeah. uh, measurement standards. Did I you see? Did you see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> but also, it's a it's a cultural issue too, because still in North America, there is this perception that factory built homes are of poor quality. Yes, that is a perception well, issue, hundred percent. Think yes. think in terms of the mobile homes and 
tornado alleys and the destruction. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of, you know, positive images with the traditional factory built home. But in reality, I think in the future, we'll see factory built hoses being the standard of care, that that will be the quality standard. I think yes. so, because it will give you the, the level of customization that you can get when you buy a car, right? Say, so, all right, you buy a car, but you can get choices of interior, fit out, color, trim, performance. That's really where prefab housing has to go. To and that's where digitization and yeah. you know the advances with being able to control that really are part and parcel of what I was referring to. There's this sort of revolution where you're marrying up the physical with the digital to get the right answer. Yeah. I mean, mm. You could not do a car with all of those customized features if you didn't have extremely smart programming to actually yes. make it happen, so to speak. So no. I, I think it's going to happen. That, I was very intrigued, incidentally, that when I was in London uh, a couple of weeks ago, they, I, I saw a, a miniature hotel being built out of shipping containers. Yeah. And they, they were called micro units and uh and it was about a six-story building quite smart but what was most intriguing was that the site they were using was owned by the railway and they said well yes you can use it for this hotel but as part of the the conditions of the lease was that you would be able to remove it within 26 days interesting clear the site in 26 days so it's a very intriguing uh, example. Oh, that's that's interesting. See, that's an example of a constraint creating, leading to creativity and innovation, right? Yes, very much so. Yeah, I like well, that. Well, then you, you could have the same thing apply to barges at a shipyard. Yeah. You know, that if, you, if you've got an area of the shipyard that's not being utilized and that uh, it's convenient to have a hotel there. Think about all the dock workers. If they're transient, a place for them to stay, it becomes basically a, you know, a housing complex. But then maybe you have to move it. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. You mentioned demographics before. One of my big uh, big theories on life, the universe, and our industry is that the baby boomers are starting to retire now in large numbers, right? So... In our industry, the baby boomers are leaving and there's a knowledge loss there, there's a skill loss there, right? And yes. there is not a, in my opinion, there's insufficient people behind that wave of baby boomers, right? So I think we're going to start facing a real big deficit in skills and knowledge, which I think will lead to the innovation we've been talking about because it becomes a constraint at that point, right? Would you agree with that as someone who studies demographics? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, um, in fact, one of the big studies that RICS did a few years ago was sort of identifying the big issues there. And one of them was absolutely this, well, we call it the war for talent, but I, I, I prefer the term competition for talent. Um, <laughs> The fact of the matter is that we are going to have to use technology to replace the skills that we've lost in some some area. So that whereas in the past we'd have a lot of people who would just be running calculators and measuring stuff and doing very uh, sort of rote type of work, we've got to take that up upstream, if you want, and have a higher level of competence around what's really important, the really thinking part of, of, the, uh, of, our, of our needs, so, because there will be shortages, there's no question. One thing, however, I would say, part of the shortage can be um, addressed by bringing more female members into the profession. Mm. We are yeah. very, we're much like engineers. I think we're not as bad as engineers, but we only have 13% of our members who are female. And our newer intakes around 25%. But the plain fact of the matter is we're missing a massive, you know, segment of the, of the, of the potential labor force who aren't coming into our, into our industry. And that is something that we've really got to work hard at. And RICS is really putting a, a huge push on for inclusion and diversity to, uh, to address that. But, I mean, your basic point is absolutely correct that um, – you know, we do have a demographic challenge. Canada, to some degree, is addressing it by opening its doors to uh, some very talented immigrants that we, yeah. you know, we really mm. have benefited in that area. But more broadly, yeah, it is right. I think it's a, it's a three-part solution, right? There's immigration is, is the easy one, frankly. More inclusion, encouraging more women yeah. to enter the, the profession, which I think is a knowledge an informational issue mostly, right? It's not, you don't, no one leaves school thinking, oh, I'm going to be a child surveyor when I grow up. You know, who does that? <laughs> right? yeah. And then the other one is technology, <laughs> right? There will still be a deficit, even if you do them first two things. And then technology hopefully becomes the the bridge. I, I, I'm ultimately yeah. optimistic on these things because I think when you're faced with a problem, innovation kicks in at a high level. It's like an adrenaline drug, right? Yeah. When you need it, it kicks in and Human yep. beings tend to solve these problems, but they're not great at uh, seeing them coming down the pipe and, and reacting slowly but surely, right? <laughs> it's, it's an emergency situation. Yeah. Um, John, I just, you know, Abbott and I have, have had um, kind of a passion for this diversity within the workplace and bringing females in. Right. And, and that's even a, probably the, the wrong term, you know, bringing them in. I mean, we don't bring them in. We have to incur- we have to create an environment where they're yeah. where they feel welcome to come Absolutely. in. Absolutely. And I would like to hear sort of what you th- what you think are some of the barriers for them to get in. We've had we had a, a young woman engineer on our on our show, and for that show we brought in a psychologist to talk with us, mainly to keep Adam and I sort of. I mean, we're yeah. Well, she was she did a great job providing guidance in the conversation because she was a, a woman with a science background. Her background was in neurosciences. Uh, and to be able to have Cecilia, who was our engineer, they had a great camaraderie there. But let's hear from you. What do you think are the barriers for these for women to come into the industry? Um, 
Well, I'd like to start by first of all saying how fabulous I think that you know many of our our uh, female members are. There are just some absolutely incredible, uh, you know, incredibly talented female uh, surveyors. Mm -hmm. Absolutely outstanding. But the barriers, I mean, they. I think the fact of the matter is that if you come into an organization which is predominantly male, there is a an unintended bias that, you know, unconscious bias that's right there in the organization. It right. tends to be a male type of oriented environment. And that's obviously off-putting. Then you can get into the more specific issues, which are to do with ensuring that, you know, th th there's a lifestyle that can still be met yes. because, you know, the blunt fact of the matter is that, that as far as I know, women have babies. And if you're going to have uh, attracting people into the workforce, you're going to have to accommodate that. So that's an issue, which is hugely yeah. important. And, and generally speaking, I think you have to sort of also say, well, it's not just uh, female members of the staff who can take maternity leave. Males can do it. So in order to, in a sense, balance out that right. capacity. So I think there are very specific examples of changes within the workplace that you can can make. You also need, in terms of attracting people, you definitely, I think, need to have uh, solid role models. And actually, one of the most interesting points I heard, somebody talking about, uh, there was some, I don't know whether she was a surveyor or some other industry, but, you know, there was this just outstanding, successful uh, female member, and, you know, she was done everything. Yeah. And somebody said, you don't really want those people because they're so outstanding that they're not really relevant. What you want is people like yourself who are the models who can then talk to you and say, this is how it worked for me. You don't necessarily want to have somebody who is a, you know, a president of a Fortune 500 company saying, you know, we want to be your role model because that's not a relevant role model. So I think we need good role models that people can relate to. That's an interesting yeah. point, actually, because, you know, if the, the role model you put up is is so successful, it becomes intimidating, right? Yeah. 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 That's an interesting thought. I never thought of it like that. I think Holly Chant, who was also on our show, yeah. serves that. She meets that definition of a good role model because she yeah. certainly is uh, both in the trenches, but also carrying out a leadership role yeah. in, in moving her organization. And, uh, you know, she... She's very humble, <laughs> considering what she's achieved in the. So she's from the United Arab Emirates, and to be in a role that she has at in a leadership position that she has is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, she's broken yeah. every glass barrier put in front of her, quite frankly, and uh, come out of it the other side smiling, which was incredible. But you're yeah, right, and to see. And Sorry. Cecilia did the same thing, yeah. although Cecilia's in the beginning of her career, where Holly's sort of in the middle part of her career, Cecilia did the same thing. She broke through a lot of barriers and a lot of difficult challenges that she went through, but never once was she bitter about her experiences. She was really positive of, about her role as a female engineer and what she was a, contributing to society. It was great. Actually, you know what would help is a female president of the RICS, right? Well, we have, and uh, it's funny you should mention that. Actually, I know, thank you for tossing that. Uh, <laughs> no, um, yeah, I think it's now five years actually ago. Right. We uh, had our first female president, Louise Brooks Smith. Wow. After uh, something in the order of 145 years, uh, we first 
we had one. And then two years later, we had another one, Amanda Clack, who uh, I just followed from, followed on from. And one, two, three years from now, we will have Kath uh, uh, Fontana, who is, uh, interestingly for you, Adam, she's a uh, facilities management uh, person, the first president who will come from the facilities management world. So uh, that- you know, we may have... We may not have had it for a long time, but we're sort of doing our very best to, to catch up. And, you know, they're not chosen on the basis that they're, uh, you know, they're, they're female. They're just outstandingly good people who, you know, they have to go through the rigors of uh, standing for office, which I can tell you is a very grueling process. But, uh, well, so, um, yeah, we're making progress. That we're is making- interesting. And that's a good way to um, talk about the pick up the pin I dropped earlier on facilities management. So that that really is a great way to, to sort of wrap things up with everything we've spoken about, because facilities management clearly is a new faculty for the RICS, I guess, right? Yeah, it's certainly one of the newer areas. Yeah. And I should mention that we have a uh, a partnership, uh, a collaboration with the International Facilities Management Association, IFMA. We have a global partnership with them, which gives them opportunities and their members to to get uh, entrance into our ICS, which is right. important. So, you know, we really do feel that facilities management is, well, it's, it's so obviously an important part of, mm. of the industry. I like that because there's a couple of things going on with facilities management. It's a it's a very sort of misunderstood thing because people think, oh, it's just the maintenance guy, but it's not, right? It's about no. the the whole maintenance of facility over yeah. its life cycle. So there's financial planning, there's everything in there. There's engineering yeah. skills, there's management skills, but also this is where the big data will come in and I think make the difference, right? So yeah. there's a cost of measuring and recording things in real time is falling exponentially, which it is. We talk about the Internet of Things, I hate that saying, but it captures it. You know, there's going to come a moment in the next five to ten years where the cost to know exactly what's going on with every system at any moment in time is going to be close to zero, right? At that point, it's going to come down to data management and then applying them analytics. This is where I think the RICS has a huge opportunity. Mm. So, you know, her timing at the helm might actually be quite fortuitous in terms of the technology arriving at the right time, her leadership arriving at the right time. But that big data, I think a future RICS or a future firm that's managing buildings is going to harvest and sell this data. Well, I think we've been following this a lot, particularly with respect to Google's Sidewalk Labs project in Toronto, which I'm not sure if you've been aware of. No, I'm But not. this is a... Um, Cities of the future, but I'll just take a very quick plug, incidentally, on this, that we've, as part of our 150th, we've got a challenge out there, and we've had over 300 entries now. There's a prize of £50,000, you know, so a lot of money, to come up with, ish, you know, some solutions to the questions of affordable housing, resilience, sustainability, etc., around the notion of cities for our future. So I think that that's where this Google project comes in. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the Internet of Things and big data sort of collide together and could, will have, I think, a very dramatic effect, including also, I suggest, artificial intelligence. Because, yes. you know, it's not always going to be people who are going to be sitting there looking at those, those data. It's going to be actually machines that look at the data and come up with some answers. But one of the things that RICS is particularly interested in is the integrity of the data. Yes. And 
the use of it. And we've seen it in, obviously, with Facebook. And so one of the questions that we're wrestling with is whether or not there needs to be data management standards that our members need to enforce as they're involved in, for instance, the whole area of facilities management or other parts of the um, of the of practice, because these are big issues which are, are clearly going to be there. And I might say that this project in Toronto that the Google uh, people are doing, that is one of the challenges that they've been facing as they've taken the uh, the ideas out to the public. The public are very concerned about who owns the data, how it's going yeah. to be used, yeah. so on and so forth. So, you know, as I say, RICS is very much involved in this question, and we're, we're, we don't have the answers yet, but it's something that we're very much aware of, and, you know, it's part of what we do, which is why we've been around for 150 years. We, we yeah. keep trying to be on top of things. Well, when I, when I think of the, the use of that data, it becomes a huge feedback loop for the whole construction process. So, you know, let's just take, for example, the facility management. What you, what you own or the, that asset, that data asset within that uh, faculty can be used, you know, by the architects, by the engineers, by the insurance agencies, the property developers – to feed back into the whole design process from yeah. land selection to architectural design to choices and yeah, enclosure, yeah. all of these things, right? It's, it becomes a huge – and so, John, your point there in terms of the cleanliness of the data, the accuracy of the data becomes really important for future development. Yeah. Also, it's yeah. a huge – yeah. The ownership is going to be – we haven't mentioned sorry. is BIM, which is yes. another thing, which, of course, is where you start from the very – you know, the ground upwards is, you know, BIM is a massively powerful – when it becomes part and parcel of you know every project, as I think I'm convinced it will. It's taken a long time to get adopted, but I think increasingly people are recognizing that it's going to become absolutely essential. You know, I don't think any old buildings aren't going to necessarily ever get bimmed, yeah. but it's going to be in the future very, I doubt very much that big expensive buildings are not going to be prepared using BIM. I don't know what you think, Adam. But oh, no, I agree. I mean, I think you're right. The big issue is going to be the ownership of that data because it's going to have extreme value. It's good. There's going to be a network effect with it, right? The more data, the more value and yeah. the more insight. And, you know, just if you're a young person listening to this, you know, the fact of the matter is most buildings, I'm talking commercial buildings, all buildings, they are sized on rules of thumb and basic spreadsheets, right? But in the future, there's going to be very accurate data available. Like, you know, if you're building mm -hmm. a residential building that's going to be for the students, there's going to be a mountain of data that's going to say they all come in and turn their faucets on at this time and the lights generally go off at this time. And you're going to be able to size accurately and then manage demand yeah. and load accurately. And that is going to be the game changer. And the engineers that don't get on board with that are going to basically mm -hmm. be left behind, in my opinion. And, uh, that's actually, of course, feeds back into the competencies of our members. Mm. Because what we're saying is, you know, certain things you learn before, you may not need to know so much, but you absolutely are going to have to become a lot more knowledgeable about the whole issue of analytics, for example. Yes. You've got to yes. Know, you're going to have to change what you think about. So, uh, we, you know, we're very conscious of that. And Again, it's all part of this notion of future-proofing our, our members to be able to, uh, to sort of still be successful during the, during the uh, you know, as this 
wave of change washes over and this disruption washes over us. I think uh, one way to cement your legacy, if, if you want the statue outside the head office, John, I think what you've got to do is this. You've got to start a faculty for data and building data analytics. Yeah, and we'll call it the John Hughes Faculty in Building. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be a big bronze statue. We don't have, uh, <laughs> I, I, it's funny you mentioned the point about statues. Because <laughs> um, I just wanted to just tell you about, and uh, well, I, I don't know, Adam, you've probably been there, but uh, Robert, if you ever go to London, <laughs> right? you should go and have a look at RICS headquarters. And it's uh, in Parliament Square overlooking many, many statues, but it's the only private building in Parliament Square. Yeah. It looks directly oh, uh, wow. across the square at uh, Big Ben, and it's just a <laughs> wonderful headquarters. But uh, and, and, and at the moment, we've got a fabulous exhibition going on, obviously, to celebrate the 150th, including, I might say, a, a model of the building made out of Lego and I think it's got 37,400 pieces. <laughs> oh, I collect Lego sets like that. I must buy one. Yeah. Fantastic. It's an absolutely fabulous model. And Fantastic. You know, one other thing we're doing for the 150 is, is uh, you know, 150 of the famous surveyors of, uh, of all time. The, you know, George Everest, as of mountain fame, I mean, he was the guy who measured the height of Everest. Uh, we've got um, Vancouver, of course, of Vancouver, say, one of yeah. the great explorers yeah and one of my very personal favorites in canadian terms is a chap called john ray who worked for the hudson bay company and um essentially mapped the northwest passage back in the day incredible uh-huh. uh, an incredible guy who we're going to be honoring in september in london with a special award we're going to make him uh, you know uh, an honorary member that's the plan anyway so uh-huh. That we, we've got some just wonderful stories that uh, of surveyors yeah. made a difference. Yeah, the history I, is huge. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I like. That well, you've touched you've touched the development of the world, really. You know, as it's evolved and absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's very exciting. I can tell you, it's a great honor to be uh, president of RICS, and and it's been lots of fun to be able to uh, talk to you guys about uh, about it. Yeah, no, it's been yeah, great. No, it's, uh, it's been our pleasure. It's been our, yeah, it's an so honor. I'd just like to wrap it up with a plug for the RICS because the RICS is it's old, it's august, it's been involved in everything, yet it is still little known and understood, even in the property circles, right, worldwide. So if you are a student wondering what to do, become a surveyor. You have a great Absolutely. career. If you have them words MRICS after your name, you can go to most countries and get a six-figure salary. If you can't have a good life with that, well, then I can't help you, right? <laughs> Adam, I'm going to have to enlist you, but you put it very, very well. I, I, it's, it, it is a passport that's international. It's a fabulous international passport. You can have an incredibly interesting career. There are so many dimensions to yeah. uh, some RICS faculties that, you know, it's just fascinating. So that's um, great. It's great. But um, I will say this, we may not be widely known, but I can tell you that we have probably one of the most, you know, the top quality membership in both Canada and the U.S. I mean, if you go to the heads of most of the really big uh, firms, 
you know, many of those are uh, are our members. So we are growing, yeah. and governments consult us regularly. I mean, they they want to know what we're doing. We work a lot with the United Nations, uh, so we really uh, we are, I think, making a difference. But it's a tough slide in North America. Yeah. Globally, we're just doing phenomenally well, and uh, we we continue to make progress in the states. But, uh, you're absolutely right. We're not a household name here, like we are in the UK. Yeah, but the fifth well, column well, is here, right? We're here. We are agents of change. We are provocateurs. We shall make the difference. Right. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. Well, John, I, I hope that we'll get to talk to you in another 150 years from now. And, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you'll be one of those honorees on the list as you celebrate well, the 300th I, year. Yeah. Well, maybe I should be persuading uh, Robert to join, uh, yeah. you know. You look useful enough that you're a few years ahead of you in the, the profession. Oh. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if I can get spun out of the uh, the, the world of Asherah, because I'm ingrained in that deep, uh, I might join your organization. <laughs> okay, John, listen, that's been awesome. Thank you very much for finding the time to talk to us. And I, so for people listening, we are going to drop this episode on June 15th, which is the same day as the 150th anniversary dinner for the RICS. So, um, yeah. again, I can't praise the RICS enough. They do great work. They bring order to a chaotic world. Consider them well, as a profession. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to look at information, just go on the uh, on the internet. There's tons and tons of stuff about it. There's fasc- you know, all sorts of fascinating stuff there. So thank you so much. And you know, I'll be in Parliament Square on that uh, June 15th for, for that special dinner. So uh, yeah. uh, I'll be thinking of this. I'll, uh, tune in. Yeah, <laughs> I, shall, I shall raise a glass. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you again. Yeah, no, congratulations on your presidency. Cheers. Well, that was a good interview. I have, I've always been a fan of John Hughes. I've known him as a friend and client when I was working in Toronto over the last sure. 10 years. I got to know him and then I had no idea he was he was up for being president of the RICS, and then I opened my LinkedIn feed one day, and there he is. You know, so the guy—he's yeah. good. He's such a good guy. He really—he's almost like the caricature RICS guy. He's like—he's mature. He's got all that knowledge and experience. He's a high integrity person. Exactly what they are, right? Yeah. To me. Yeah, he should run for politics. Yeah. <laughs> no, that would probably that would probably wreck him. <laughs> yeah, that would ruin him. Yeah. Politics is horrific. <laughs> but you know, like when you think about it, so the organization's been around since 1868. Yeah. They're going to celebrate their 150th year anniversary coming up. They're all over the world. They have 125,000 uh, accredited individuals, professionals, high integrity. My God. Yeah, where they've been? How come people don't? I mean, it's incredible well, that it's it's a North America phenomenon. So this is fascinating to me. So in the UK, if you're in property, you're aware of these people because if you want to rise to the top and earn big money, you just have to join that gang and get qualified. Mm-hmm. And to get qualified, you have to have a proper degree. Then you have to do a thing called the APC, the Assessment and Professional Competence, which means you've got to write a paper, you've got to go there, and then four guys like John pick you to death for two hours, and then they decide. If you've <laughs> wow. made it right, and I, because I, I did it as an older guy, as a mature guy, I, I found it sort of okay. It was a bit brutal, but it was okay. But if you're a young graduate going through that, I mean, I know people that literally cry waiting to go into these interviews, right? Because <laughs> so much rides on it. It's a tough thing, and if you come yeah. through the other side and get their magic words after your name, you are guaranteed to have a great professional career with a great salary. 
Yeah. Right. So there was a lot riding on it, and uh, it's fascinating. But when you, you know, I come to North America, and it's not really that prolific here. But when in Canada specifically with the big P3 projects, the lenders that are coming in, so if you're Ellis Don or PCO, you're saying, right, lend me $500 million, I'm going to build a hospital. And mm-hmm. HSBC go, okay, that's fine. But, you know, you've got to hire a chart surveyor and he's going to tell us that if you tell me you're 50% complete and you need $100 million, he's going to look at that and say yes or no. You're not just going to come and ask me for $100 million and I'm just going to give it to you. Yeah, And that yeah. has really led to a rise in prominence of surveying in North America. And I think the P3 trend is finally starting to penetrate the US now. So, again, I see that happening. So, interesting. But the the chaos in the lack of standards, so particularly in New York when I worked there, I mean, that 24% difference. So in the UK, I've done, Yeah, that was huge. I can not believe that. I've done, I'm, I'm still shocked. <laughs> I've done development jobs, right, where we've leased the building and then the leasee surveyor comes in and measures it and then the developer surveyor comes in. If they have disagreement, they will argue over like millimetres, right? Because it's big rent. It's £80 a square foot rent. So a right, millimetre yeah. all round is a lot of money over 25 years because everything's, you know, securitised and mortised right. over 25 years. Up with only leases. So that measurement is critical. So as a developer in the UK, everything's about the net to gross efficiency of the building. And in the US, it's just like, here's the floor, F you, give me the money. It's the mafia model. It's like, F you, (laughs) pay me, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I actually think as globalization really does take effect, you know, these standards (laughs) will come in. But that's the, I mean, New York is hilarious. I love my year there, but it is funny my, my son said to me once he said the, yeah i'm right you're wrong screw you pay me yeah. <laughs> there's a great scene in goodfellas where he explains to the guy what it means to borrow money from paulie the mafia guy you know he says if you borrow money from paulie it's like oh you're ill can't pay you can't pay no f you pay me your mum's dead f you pay me your leg's fallen off f you pay me <laughs> that's right. real estate in new york pretty much yeah one of the things that really intrigued me about the organization, and I didn't, we didn't get a chance to really get into it much, but you know, when you think about, so like in the professional world of engineering, there's the university college technology program. You graduate, you enroll in the membership, the mem- uh, professional, so to get your, say, a, a PEng or a PE yeah. in the US or an RET or whatever, a PLNG. But there's government legislation that, that oversees that. Now, a PEGA or the Ontario engineers, they don't write standards like our ICS is writing standards. You know, you have organizations like ASHRAE that write the standards, but the professional members are really governed by their own legislated. Yeah. So let me clear that up for you because this is, I've come to realize that North America, and when I say that, I mean Canada and America is an island, right? It's an island oven to itself. There's no free market or trade, even between provinces and states, let's be honest, right? Yeah. So in the UK, if you're an engineer, you become a chartered engineer. You do, you do your degree. You have to qualify just like you do in North America. And then the engineering council anoint various institutions like mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, building service engineers, civil engineers. And then mm-hmm. they assess your competence. You have a degree. Then they assess your competence over a four-year training period. And then they, you become a chartered engineer. But there's no licensing. You're not, it's not like a licensed engineer. So a chartered engineer is the same as a professional engineer, but it's not a licensing scheme, right, where you can be – you can have it taken off you, but there's no drawing stamped in the UK or other parts of the world. There's no stamping. 
it's just different. The, the model of stamping on that is a very 1950s, 1960s thing. And I know why it's there. In, the, in North America, it's there because it's a standard and then you can be de-licensed, which brings accountability, right? And you mm. can be sued. All them things happen in the UK, but really engineering responsibility falls under the auspices of the firm and is insured. So, you know, no child engineer stamps drawings, really, unless he's working in an odd country that requires it. And, you know, these are perfectly very competent, qualified engineers who don't even bother getting chartered, and they just do the same engineering work as a professional engineer because it's the right. firm's liability, it's the firm's design, right? And, again, North America is just this little island with its own little set of rules. So the RICS is more like is, is a very UK institution, right? So you are – they are – doing two things as john said they're trying to bring order to the chaos of property right and they are also as part of bringing that order saying if someone has this level of degree qualification and this level of assessed competence by us that person is of a certain level so they have a certain capability and a certain level of integrity right and the industry is self-policing so can they be de-licensed they're not but they are licensed and they're not they can can they lose their membership yes Right, if they're sued and there's a big public foopar, then yes. But really, the industry is self-regulating because mm. good people progress and bad people don't. Right, that's the beauty to see as a libertarian. I always get on this in most, you know, self-regulation <laughs> works, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't know. I think that's very powerful that yeah. uh, that that they ha- that the organization has the ability to create standards, but also has the ability to accredit or provide accreditation. Yeah. And because they're policing the members according to their standards, like you yeah. said, they they create the standards and then they hold their. It's not a membership organization; it's a standard organization that holds its members accountable yeah. to the standards. That's a pretty powerful thing. It's kind of a mix of what we sort of have in North America, but it's it's going back to what you said. It's a self policing, self regulating. Yeah. The, the issue in Canada and America is the fact that the licensing is done at state and provincial levels. So like right. in Canada, you've got 10 licensing boards, right? right? So, you know, they've all got their own agenda. They've all got their own existence to maintain, right? Why isn't yeah. there just one licensing board? Why right. isn't there one driving license? Yeah, it's a job creation scheme maybe. Who knows? Adam, it's because the math in yeah. Fredericton is different than the math in Yellowknife and in Calgary or Toronto. Yeah. The science, you know, it changes yeah, but that could be that's that could be dealt with in the educational university level, right? Well, I get you know I'm saying that facetiously because it does the it doesn't change the math doesn't change the science doesn't change yeah. so why you know there should you're right why do we have multiple boards it's, and it's and uh, yeah when I look at Alberta for example the relationship that Apega has with assets it's probably one of the best models in yeah. Canada one because the two organizations came together and said, you know what, the technician, the technologist has a huge role to play in the world of, of engineering. Mm-hmm. And APEGA, you know, credit to them, you know, recognize that and uh, and also credit to Asset for bringing that awareness out. And the two organizations came together and said, yeah, you know, that's we, we need to work together. Yeah. You don't see that camaraderie in other parts of the world, uh, of Canada, mm-hmm. and you certainly don't see that in the United States. In the United States, there's no level of technologist or technician. You're either no. an engineer or you're, or you're not, right? It's part of the class system in the States. When I worked, yeah. It was very interesting when I worked, I worked on uh, JFK Terminal 4. So there is a, a blue-collar class and a white-collar class, and there is no middle. 
Yeah, right. So that's just that's just wrong. I think I just I just see that as being a very distasteful organization. It, so social mobility is hard in them levels. Right? I started out as a balancing guy, you know, and yeah. a technologist at college, and I've yeah. wound up where I am. But I don't think I could have made that same journey in the U.S. Yeah, I, I don't totally know. Agree. That's pure yeah. conjecture, I guess. Right? Yeah, you know, I'm sure there's some Americans going, "Adiel, if you we're number one." I don't know. Right? <laughs> mega, mega, mega. But <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I've two of my kids are American. I want them to have as much social mobility as humanly possible and do as well as possible. So I'm not against anything. Yeah, I'm just reflecting on my journey. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because in, in when I and we're one of these days, we're going to do a show about business yeah. and because uh, we both own businesses, we both sold businesses. Our our hierarchy and our in our organization was horizontal. Yeah. And that and and that we were way ahead of our time with that structure. We didn't we didn't see, you know, some narcissist at the very top of the pinnacle of the organization, you know, dictating yeah. everybody down below all the peons, you know, that was that was dysfunctional in our eyes. We just saw we saw head office as as a support mechanism. And it was yeah. a very much a horizontal relationship with our people. And it wasn't until when we sold the business to a company that uh, had a hierarchical organizational yeah. chart that we saw friction and that friction ultimately led to destruction of our company and thus buying it back again. <laughs> at a greatly reduced cost, I hope. At a greatly reduced cost. <laughs> but so, yeah, the, in terms of the world of engineering and the technology and the technicians, yeah. there has to be room for both. And I think that within the professional world of engineers, I, I hope that we have more of a horizontal relationship with our fellow colleagues than a hierarchy. Yeah. I agree. Okay, then we should wrap that up here. So it's a good episode. I really enjoyed speaking to John. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. I, he's a, a wonderful gentleman, and uh, you know, really wish the organization all the best. And you know, 150 years, and another 150 will be 300, and I think they'll have touched the North American marketplace in a way that we just haven't begun to oh, understand. Yeah. I am sure they're going to penetrate here and sort things out. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you bet. You bet. Okay. Take care. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.